Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 437 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It is Monday, August 15th, 2022, and we are back to answer a few of your questions. Plus, we discuss the SEC commissioner's vision of the future of the NCAA tournament. But first, we have introductions. I'm Donald Wine, your host for this episode. Just quickly, tomorrow, uh, as we record, tomorrow, August 16th, is my dad's birthday. So very quickly and very simply... Happy birthday, Dad. He's not going to be listening to this because he is taking a cruise right now um, for his birthday. So hopefully he's having a great time. I have my two friends with me. Also a fun time. Jason Evans and Sam Klein. Sam, first of all, what's up with you? Have the oceans of moving boxes receded yet? Yeah, they are mostly gone. Although I was out of town this weekend. The highlight of which was that I went to one of my best Duke friends weddings on Friday night in Philadelphia. And I went up to, I, I I know his parents sort of in passing, but I haven't talked to them in many years. I hadn't seen them probably since we were in school. So I went up to his dad and I introduced myself. Hi, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm Sam. And uh, he said, Oh, Sam, I listened to your podcast. So I need to uh, shout out Jeff who, uh, whose son Scott got married on Friday. Uh, thank you for being a listener of the show. So it was a lot of fun. Hey, and props to Scott. Props to Scott for not scheduling his wedding during March. I hear far too many Duke fans that do that kind of thing. That is bad, bad mojo. No, no, and and, and Scott's wedding was a good time. So uh, it, it would have been a real bummer if I had to skip it for uh, basketball games. We have a whole off season for that, which is almost over. We're, we're getting closer. Perfect. Getting perfect closer. timing. Exactly. Yeah, it's before football seasons, before basketball season. It's there's no U.S. soccer games. This that's, is why that's I, the perfect window. This this is why I got married in June. Yeah. Also, I want to shout out the Duke alumni softball team here in D.C. We had uh, an alumni tournament here in D.C. over the weekend. Uh, a lot of them do listen to the podcast and funny enough, don't know that I'm on it. So to all of you on the Duke alumni softball team, it's Donald. Hello. Uh, good. Good to play with you guys over the weekend. Jason, Wait, you're is here. that Donald. You're that, that Donald? Donald. Yeah, there's. There's only two of me. One is on a cruise and one is talking to you two. Um, wow. But there's also Jason Evans here. Jason, I believe you're still in the Jersey Shore. How's that going? Actually, I'm not. I'm back in Atlanta. Uh, oh, returned okay. from Great. my foray to the Jersey Shore. Yeah, back in Atlanta. I have a uh, important task I must accomplish here at the beginning of the podcast. It is time for an apology. On our, our last podcast, at the very end, we shouted out a birthday. Courtesy, we were told of it by Avery Fulton. Avery, a delightful listener, 10-year-old listener of the podcast, who wrote to me and said, please, please say happy birthday to my father. And I was so thrilled to do it. And I ble- I had several emails with Avery, and I blew it. Avery is not a boy. I thought Avery was, uh, you know, I, 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 I played the... Jason, Jason, you're forgiven. It's I, I've met boys and girls named Avery, so... Yeah. No. It, it it's one of those names w- that could go either way, and because yep. this is a sports related podcast, I thought it's a guy, and that is, this is this totally is, wrong of me. This is our fault. This, this is, is our fault. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. There are a ton of female Duke fans out there, and Avery Fulton is one of them. So Avery, I am so sorry that I assumed, and assuming makes a blank out of you and me. I assumed that Avery was a boy. Avery is a girl, and she is a wonderful Duke fan, and her father should be very, very proud of her. Uh, we, we I, I think we all extend that apology to her, but we also thank her 
uh, for again sending that shout out and for dad and her dad responded thanking us for uh, the, yes, he did. In, for the for the birthday wishes. So it was great to hear from uh, for him from him as well. So apologies, uh, as they would say in print, uh, Jason's in, in media, as they would say, the podcast regrets the error. Um, but we live and we learn and, and we will do better next time. So, uh, Jason, thank you for that. But, gentlemen, let's get into the first part of our show, which is to answer some more questions that were sent in by our incredible listeners. We had quite a few questions or comments kind of come in lately. So uh, a lot of you love the surprise scenarios that Jason gave us in our last episode. So if we get some other scenarios or topics to debate down the line, we will certainly do those. But I want to start off with a question we get we got from Jonathan Bow, who sends in questions a lot. He sent in a few questions. We thank him once again for a really good question. This is the one we want to discuss. He writes, let's say there's a million dollars on the line for you as the winner. And all you have to do is pick one Duke team to win six consecutive games to win the national championship. Which team are you picking? Jason, I'm going to start with you. And personally, I think I know your answer, but tell the people, who are you putting your trust in for a million bucks? I want to know who you think I'm going to say. I, I want you to say it first and I'll tell I know. you. Jason, do you want me to tell you what you're going to say? Yeah, I, let me hear it. 1999. Yes! That's what I said. Yeah. Good call. <laughs> yes, if I have to win six games in a row, I'm picking the 1999 team, which is the which is a team that failed to win six games in a row in the NCAA tournament. But that doesn't matter. During the course of their season, they won 32. Count them, 32 games in a row. Didn't matter where they were playing, home or away. They were world eaters. They beat the pants off of everybody. I, I mean, like, this is a team that, would go to Carolina on the road at UNC, win by 20. On the road at Virginia, win by 46. This team stomped everyone they played until they had that one off game, unfortunately, against UConn in the finals, in the NCAA championship finals. If it were not for that one game, if we can reverse that one result, if, you know, Trajan Langdon makes that last second shot that he never got a chance to make, whatever, then that team goes down, I think, as one of the five best teams in college basketball history. If I'm looking for a team that has to win six games in a row, I want a team where their margin for error is wide, really wide. Not a team that wins close games. I want a team that just beats the pants off of everybody, and that's what 1999 Duke was. That's a great choice, and again, I think Sam and I kind of thought that was going to be your answer. Sam, I'm kind of curious because I don't think I know your answer. You have a little bit more of a wide range of teams that you have liked over the years and teams that you may not have grown up with that you kind of learned about as you got older. So I want to see what your team is. I want to guess. I want to guess Sam's answer. Go ahead. I'm going to guess 1992. Oh, I like that guess. Well, my, my first guess, uh, my, my honorary mention is the 1942 uh, football team. Uh, the Iron Dukes. The... Well done, sir. Well done. <laughs> I think is it forty two. I think it's forty two. Uh, I need to. I need to Google this while we're going to make sure I get the right the right year. But the one year where Duke didn't give up a point until the last uh, until last the Rose Bowl that was held in at Wally Wade. No, well, I don't think. I, I think these are different years. I believe that Duke played in the Rose Bowl in California. I think this might have been the thirty nine team that played the in the thirty nine team. Also, didn't allow a point. They didn't allow a point until the last minute of the season. And they mm-hmm. lost in the Rose Bowl to to USC. I think that the 42 team was the one that hosted the Rose Bowl at Wallace Wade Stadium against Correct. Oregon State. If none of this matters to you, uh, you have at least 
three Wikipedia pages to read now. So, <laughs> so you're either either you're welcome because I made you smile at the at the reference I've made, or you're welcome because now you have a new rabbit hole to go down. Uh, in in all seriousness, Jason, I, I think that 99 is the right answer. The only one that I would honestly put above it. Uh, or, or that I would put sort of in that same range. I think 92 was great, right? 91 was great. Those teams had had all kinds of killers, um, but both of those teams like lost a few tricky games. I think 2001 is the other team that is really dominant in the way that you were talking about. They lost a few more games than 99 did, but I think had sort of a similar like ceiling of firepower. And, you know, they, I mean, they got down in the final four. So maybe, you, maybe you don't like that about them. But Jason Williams, Chris Duhon, Mike Dunleavy, Shane Battier, Carlos Boozer, all these guys were were out of control. I mean, Jason, you know this better than any of us do. Uh, you've you've talked to all of them. So I think 2001 is on there. I love 92. I think 1986 was a pretty fun team, but I don't know if we're going to uh, I don't know if we're going to put them in this group. 1978, I wish I had seen uh, because I think that the 1978 team was also uh, full of dudes. But this is just going way back into the black and white era. So I just have no like frame of reference for them. Yeah. So for me, I mean, 2001 is obviously it. It's my favorite team of all time ever. I think you guys knew that I was going to go in that direction, but I think Jason, the difference that I think between 99 and 2001, they both had you know, to, to bring it to the 2022 era. They both had those dogs, you know, guys that had that dog in them. Right. But I think for, the 2001 team, they also learned how to deal with adversity. Of course, I lived it. You were able to speak with the guys. So they were able to deal with, you know, being down 22 points in a final four or being down 10 points with 50 seconds left. They were able to figure out how to win when the odds were so extremely against them that you also need that as well. Yeah. Every, you know, I love teams that blow teams out and they did that, but they also were able to fight and claw back against teams that maybe shouldn't have beaten them or teams that probably or games they shouldn't have probably won they were able to find a way to win and i think in a tournament you need that sort of luck on your side you need that sort of experience on your side i'm, I'm not going to fight with you i'm merely going to say 1999 never had to do that because they were never right. down <laughs> they were never down until like the last three seconds of the season exactly right, right. <laughs> so i mean that i think that's also a great option because again if you're trying to do a million dollars i'm sure you're not trying to lose your hair doing it Sorry, I've already lost, uh, you know, cut all mine off. So I don't have to worry about that aspect of things, which is probably why I'm going with 2001. So, uh, Jonathan, that was a great question. Thank you for that. Uh, we're going to move on to the next question. This one comes from Kenneth Hepps. Uh, and I hope I pronounced your last name correctly. But uh, Kenneth's question is, in addition to updates on our early departures from last season, it would be great to hear about the transfers we were sorry to see leave. Did they step up or would they still be Duke bench players? And I think this is an interesting question because you kind of have twofold the popular, you know, the popular guys that we wish had remained, but also the question of if they had remained, what would have happened to their career? Would they have, you know, thrived eventually or would they have remained a Duke bench player, which is the, you know, the reason why at least most of them decided to transfer elsewhere. So Sam, I'll go to you for this one. Are there any guys that stand out to you? as guys that you wish could have stayed in a Duke uniform and what would have happened had they done it. I mean, the guy that I think we liked the most that we were the most bummed by in recent years was Henry Coleman. Uh, the one that, that I think had the most surprising sort of post Duke uh, resurgence in recent years was Jordan Goldwire, who was great last season for Oklahoma. I think some of the other guys who have transferred 
you know, for the most part, they don't end up playing and starring roles. And I think it, it's sort of like, dude, dude, what about Semi? Semi Ojale. Shami Ojale is the is the is yeah. the other one that that I was going to go back a few more years for uh, for him between Shami Ojale and uh, and uh, Sean Obi as well. Um, so there have been there have been a couple of these guys, but for the most part, I think the point of guys transferring away for the most part is that they're kind of not getting the minutes at Duke, which means they're probably not getting minutes at another big time program. Like even when Jordan Goldwire goes from Duke to Oklahoma, Oklahoma's in a great conference. They've had they've had some tournament success, et cetera. Um, but I I think you you know that the the system is working in a way because guys are transferring out and not necessarily or like in rare instances becoming stars. But for the most part, they sort of continue to ride the bench. So um, those are I know, those are the few names that were top of mind to me. So I think for me, um, I had a list of guys that I thought were players that I, I I did not like to see go because I you know really liked them being in Duke uniforms. They either played well or I thought they would emerge and play well. There's a couple of names that I think would have starred at Duke had they stayed. The first one is Elliot Williams. The only reason he really left Duke is because his mom was sick and he ended up transferring to be closer to his family. But he, I thought, would have been a star um, at Duke had he continued to stay. Michael Benajay is another one who ended up transferring to Syracuse and having a really great career ended up going to the NBA, at least for a tiny bit. He he did get drafted by the Pistons. Uh, Simi Ojale, another one that ended up in the NBA because of what he did once he left Duke. And I think there's also the guys that I think, you know, probably would have still remained on a, in a bench role, but were fan favorites. Jamal Boykin is the first one that I remember who played a lot of games that end up transferring. And like the fans were like, dang, like that's our guy. Now he's gone. We're still going to root for him, but we wish he was back. It, he didn't do much on the court, but he was a fan favorite in the energy that he always provided when he was on the court. Henry, Henry Coleman is another one. Um, and, and I think honestly, Jamin Brakefield, you know, he could have, maybe carved out not necessarily a star role, but at least a role where he would have gotten a few minutes here and there. And he had some stretches for us in his freshman year where he was instrumental to a lot of, you know, a lot of victories in that, you know, that COVID year. Uh, so those were guys that I thought were players that eat for, for one way or another, I wish they were still in Duke uniforms for the rest of their career. Jason, what about you? So first of all, just in terms of the recent guys, um, Coleman, Breakfield, Goldwire, I, all had nice seasons last year. Henry Henry Coleman, especially over at Texas A and M, was one of their best players. Uh, but if you if you look at what last year's team was, I'm I'm really not seeing. Uh, was Henry Coleman going to play ahead of Theo John? No. Um, I I I just don't I don't think there was going to be much of a role for those guys last year. And even if they'd stayed, and we project them now onto this year's team. Uh, look at how deep this year's team is. I I don't see a lot of a role for them. I miss them from the standpoint of, you know, their personality and and I loved having them in the program and and everything. Look, you know, everything changes in terms of what the roster looks like if they're still here. But but I don't know that they are guys who I look at what they've done since they left and I go, oh, if that guy was still here, we'd be winning more games. So I do want to give you a couple names where I think maybe you would have one, one more games. One guy, this is before both of your times, Billy McCaffrey, who was on oh, yeah. the 90 and 91 teams. He was part of the 91 national championship transferred out of Duke and went to, um, went to Vanderbilt where he became 
I mean, an outstanding, outstanding player at Vanderbilt. Averaged more than 20 points per game. Um, his first year at Vandy, which was 93, he shot better than 50% from three. I'm repeating that. Dude hit more than half his three-pointers. Now, I know, Duke Duke wins the 1992 national title, whether he's there or not. <laughs> uh, but I think if Billy McCaffrey sticks around, um, that team in 93 is significantly better. And there was also a possibility he left Duke because he wanted to play more point guard. Wasn't going to do that with Bobby Hurley there. There's a possibility that he takes a redshirt year and sticks around, and he is a point guard for Duke in 1994. Grant Hill's senior year, Duke loses to Arkansas in the national championship game. You add a Billy McCaffrey to that team, a 20-point-per-game scorer who lights it up from the perimeter, I think maybe there's another band there for Grant Hill and his team and Chris Collin, you know, and his teammates. If that happens, I think you also have to realize that we, I, I know about Billy McCaffrey mainly because of the McCaffrey name, that family, but it's obviously on the football side. Ed was a longtime wide receiver. Yes. Won a couple of Super Bowls. You know, Max McCaffrey played at Duke. Christian McCaffrey obviously is still in the, in the NFL. So uh, Billy McCaffrey was kind of like the guy who kind of laid the cause. And I remember Max talking about uh, Billy's time at Duke was kind of why they, you know, endeared, uh, themselves for and, and really why he ended up looking at and, and attending Duke. All right. So now I'm about to wrap this up. I got a really creative one for you. Let's and this it. guy, uh, to me, this guy's a transfer. He was absolutely going to be a Dukey, Chris Humphreys. So in, in 2003, Chris Humphreys committed to play basketball at Duke university. He was considered like a top 20, top 25 kind of recruit. He was going to come in along with Lou Aldang to a team that already had J.J. Redick and Sheldon Williams on it. Um, a fairly experienced team. Daniel Ewing was on that club. Chris Duhon. And and then Chris Humphreys, as he continued to play like summer ball and, and you know, uh, finish up his senior year, his he improved in the rankings. And his family really wanted to make sure he was going to go someplace where he could play and play a lot. And they looked at the Duke roster, and they weren't sure that he would even be a starter at Duke. So they asked out of the commitment that they had to Duke, and he went to Minnesota instead, where he was one of the best freshmen in the country. Averaged more than 20 points per game. He was one and done. After one year at Minnesota, he went on to the NBA and had a very successful NBA career. If you add Chris Humphreys to that 1990, I'm sorry, to that 2004 Duke team, and that Duke team, I already mentioned some of the guys on it. They had five great starters in that team. That team did not have a lot of depth, though. It was like after those five starters, it was like Shavlik Randolph and Sean Dockery, and like that was it coming Which off the bench. Which was kind of the problem, exactly in, in that mm -hmm. in that last game. You so. add a scoring, rebounding forward to that team. You add anybody the to that team as someone who was in the front row for that game, the last game of my college career. Uh, the reason why that was a problem is because so many guys ended up falling out of that game uh, because of. The referee is just kind of turning the tide on and, and letting him make Okafor go to the line every five seconds. If if Chris I'm Humphreys st is I'm on, still not bitter. If Chris Humphreys is on that team, the refs don't matter. That team cuts down the nets, no question about it. So that's my transfer. That I guess it's kind of sort of a pseudo transfer. What, Jason? You don't want to you don't want to bring up Sean Livingston in the same uh, same discussion as Chris Humphreys? Yeah, but uh, believe me, yes. I, I was going to say Sean Livingston we, we would have qualified <laughs> if he went somewhere else but ended up going yeah. straight to the NBA. But right. that was one where like, I think the dynamics of those teams change if he's on there because of how late that he 
you know, pulled himself out to go to the NBA, which I think was still like, it wasn't like Coach K, like it wasn't like the EB situation uh, where Coach K was, you know, miffed at it. He was like, right. that makes a lot of sense. Go forth, go forth, young son, and claim your money. Um, so I, I think there, everyone's there, still with the there are listeners under 35 right now who are like, what, the, what are these names? They don't know. Yeah. John up, Livingston look- was in the NBA until very recently. So. Yeah, but they don't know the the history of him at Duke, and they definitely don't know the new duty and the whatever the Eb yeah, story. Yeah. The Eb story is a great one. That's it's not a great one for Duke. It, I I hate it for Duke, but it is a it is a story that you need to definitely research if you have not done it already. Uh, guys, I want to move to our final question, and this question, bear with me, it's a longer one, uh, but I need to provide context for some of these people out here for some of the words we're going to say in it is from Jimmy Wynn. Um, and Jimmy, Wynn, his question is, who wait, wait, is you should tell, Go- you uh, should tell everyone who Jimmy Wynn is. He is, he is a prominent poster on the DBR boards, the DBR forums. He goes by the name of urinal cake on the DBR forums. <laughs> so if you don't know urinal cake, dude has some good content. Easily a, a top 20, if not top 10 DBR poster. I, yes. I, 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 I would have ranked him even before we got this email. Oh yes, for sure. Uh, so now we, so now people on the forum know his government name. But uh, here's his question: Who is John going to shiv? Allow me to explain. It's a common theme in every movie that involves a character being sent to prison. That on the first day they're supposed to shiv someone in order to assert dominance and send a message that they're not to be messed with. Obviously, we don't want John to actually physically attack someone, but we do want him to be respected as an authority figure. Things have been all smiles so far, but we know there will be some difficult times when a player is unhappy, when player when parents are unhappy, or heaven forbid, we actually lose a game. So I wonder how John will respond when challenged and whether he can get tough with a player who doesn't want to run laps or is goofing off in practice. Will he single someone out and make an example of him? Is there a side of John that we've never seen? It'd be awesome to be a fly on the wall to see whether he curses up a storm like Kay would or has a different type of style. So really to, to summarize that question is is coach is coach john shire going to be uh, for lack of a better word an authoritarian when it comes to his style of, of approach to coaching or do you think he's more calm and measured in his approach to especially the difficult times sam i'll go to you first i mean i think we know even from our you know limited view of john shire as the head coach and and in his time as the as an assistant at Duke, which he has been for many years, that he, for better or worse, does not bring the same kind of mania to the sideline and probably behind the scenes that Coach K did. No judgment on that, right? They're different styles. Coach K is famous to the point of infamous for being insane. We hear it on every story that the that the former players come on and tell us. Usually their they're great Coach K stories are things that he does where you're like, a sane person would not do those things, would not bring dangerous props into the locker room, would not jump around even though he has no uh, original functional hips, that sort of thing. I don't see John Shire doing any of those things. I think that John Shire's approach to leadership and to coaching is going to be much more you know, in, in line with the fact that John Shire's of the millennial generation and Coach K is of the like, the like older boomer generation. Like Coach K is, is you know, early boomer. Uh, so I think that John Shire is, is probably adapting a lot of the leadership techniques that, you know, people my age 
are learning these days about empathy and compassion and stuff. Now, does that mean that he won't yell at a ref from time to time? No. Do I think, though, that he's going to employ some of these more creative tactics with the guys when when the going gets tough? I don't think so. Uh, I, I don't think we will get stories of John Shire chewing out. Like Jeremy Roach would be a would be a perfect target for this, right? And, and we can totally envision this. There will be a game in December or January where Jeremy Roach makes a bunch of bad passes or misses some easy shots, and he's like the junior, he's a captain, he's the point guard. He's supposed to be everything for this team. He might not be the, the biggest scorer on this team. He's not the most talented guy on this team, but he's going to be the heartbeat of this team. And there will be a game where he goes like, you know, one for eight from the field, has two assists and four turnovers. I do not think that John Shire is going to spend all the next day's film session uh, laying into Jeremy Roach. I think he'll take him aside and maybe do it privately, but I do not see that sort of thing happening. Jeremy Roach would be the guy that, that would have to take this. And if it's not him, maybe it would have to be one of the star freshmen like Derek Lively or, or Derek Whitehead. But again, I just don't see the relationship that John Shire has built with all of these players leading him to think that the best way to motivate them at a hard time is to go full coach K psycho on them. So the thing I would say about this is you are correct, Sam, that is, uh, you know, Shire has come up at a different time than coach K and that the, you know, the whole notion of yelling at players and the such and, and yelling at everybody is, is looked upon differently today than it was 40 plus years ago. That said, we know from stories that we've heard, in fact, stories that we've heard recently, John Shire, intense dude you get him on the floor in a simple pickup game dude wants to win and he will let you know if it's not going the way he wants it to go sam i do think you correctly identified the player i i think that you will see we may not hear about it but i think that at some point early in regular season practices there will be a moment where Jeremy Roach just quite doesn't do the right thing and Shire lays into him and Roach is getting balls thrown at him perhaps or Rose, Roach is running some extra steps or doing extra suicides or whatever else it may be. But yeah, that's the guy. That's the guy that it has to be. And I do think that John Shire will recognize he does sort of need, you know, he can be a little more touchy-feely than Coach K, but his team needs to know that he's also intense and he has intense expectations for them that is the only way for you to succeed at Duke because everyone gives Duke their best shot. So Duke must give everyone their best shot. This is not specific to John Shire, although I can neither confirm nor deny whether I actually witnessed this specifically from him. But when you're a Duke undergraduate student and you get into a beer pong game with a basketball player, you're toast. Uh, Seen it. The <laughs> many the, times the, <laughs> that's funny. The the first of all, the height really puts you at a, puts me at a disadvantage because I'm like five five. But uh, the the competitive nature untouched. So look, uh, don't do it. I'm not going to name names, uh, but there were two players uh, that were prominent uh, prominent beer pong partner when I was in college that I literally have seen go an entire night when i say entire night, i mean like 6 p.m until 2 a.m or longer before they ended up at shooters uh, seeing them go a full you know eight hours without missing a shot in beer pong like not a single shot yeah don't it, it, i'm not i'm not exaggerating do, really come on i'm not exaggerating and, uh-uh, and if you i'm not them I'm in keeping, a, keeping names out of it 
Wow. Get them in everyone a, who has robbed me knows exactly who I'm talking about. Get them in a uh, get them in a flip cup game. No chance. No but first chance. of all, yeah. you're probably gonna get knocked over. Uh so you know, keep a low center of gravity. But uh yeah, they right. obviously they're operating on a different plane than we are. I'm sort of assuming, you know, I'm I'm translating, you know, normal human behavior into the the realm of the, you know, high level college athlete bound for uh playing professional sports. So for me, I, I think Jimmy, when he asked this question, he forgot the most important detail of those movies. It wasn't that you went and just shift somebody. You had to go to the biggest person in the yard and make sure that everyone saw it so that everyone knew, yo, that man just messed with a big dog. Don't mess with him. The big dog, as you guys mentioned on this team, is, is Jeremy Roach. So if you're going to uh, use someone to establish some authority, it's going to be through the biggest, you know, the best leader on the team, the most experienced, the guy who's been there before, who the freshmen go, man, if they have, if it can happen to him, it can happen to me, right? Having said that, you know, I, I went to that open practice last year and yes, it was an open practice. So it's not like coach K and the guys were really getting at people, but you can see the intensity approach and John Shire does not have an old school approach to intensity. His intensity is more of a new, new school way of thinking, right? You can still be intense while still not going all the way. And I think just like Coach K kind of took what he learned from Bob Knight, but not everything. Coach Shire is going to take some things that he learned from Coach K, but not everything. Right. Because not everything that and even Coach K has admitted this, like he's like, hey, things that I did in the 90s would not be acceptable now. Um, but it was acceptable then and, and players were understanding of it. But now you just can't do that anymore because the times have changed. Shire is in that in that new realm where he goes, okay, I can still be intense in different ways, but it's got it's not going to be, you know, where he again bringing in samurai swords and you know slicing watermelons in the in the you know in half to kind of you know you know get up the crowd or whatever. But it's going to be where yes, he may throw guys out of practice, he may lock the gym or or lock the locker room and tell them, hey, you're you're not you're not Duke players until you answer to the standards that we have set forth. So. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be a new school approach. The The only thing is, I, and I hate that all three of us said the same name in Jeremy Roach. The one other guy who I think is a possibility here. I mean, Donald, you said biggest guy in the yard what about Ryan Young, Ryan Young, True. fifth, you know, fourth year, senior, fifth year, whatever it is. I mean, Ryan Young has been around college basketball for a long time and he's a big dude. If Shire goes up and gets in his face, which would mean Shire's getting up on his tippy toes. Um, that could have an impact on the team. So I'm just tossing that out there. My guess is that Ryan Young and Kale Catchings, while experienced and potential targets for this sort of thing, are exactly the guys who will never be targeted by John Shire. Right. Because probably they're true. not they're yeah, not the they, big dogs of campus, well, right? They are not and, that's they and they're gonna tall, do they're, not they're the gonna do the right thing, you know? Like something mm-hmm. something tells me that uh, you know, they they come in having played for for Coach Collins and, and Tommy Amaker. Um, they, they know the drill, right? They know, they, they know a little bit about what Duke basketball is about because of their coaches, their former coaches, but they don't know what Duke basketball is fully about. The one big dog that has that pedigree and has that experience and knowledge is Jeremy Roach. And again, this is, this is not to single out Jeremy Roach. We, we expect a lot of great things from him. We are, we are all in his corner, but again, if you're going to, going to do it, you got to go after the big dog and Jeremy Roach. Sorry, man. That's you. Um, so we'll leave it there. Um, thank you to everybody who submitted questions. And again, you don't have to wait for a mailbag segment to send us questions. We always take them. DBRpodcast at gmail.com. 
But coming up, a look at the SEC Commissioner's vision for the NCAA tournament and a cool story that we received from a listener. We'll discuss all of that after the break. We are back and we shift gears to the future of the NCAA tournament. And we have some interesting comments from SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey this week in a Sports Illustrated article. And he says that basically, quote, it is time for a fresh look, end quote, at the best sporting event in America. And his vision for that fresh look includes finding a way to add more power five schools to the group without taking automatic bids away from mid-majors. In short, he's talking about tournament expansion. So, Jason, you've been involved in this. You kind of took a, a deep look at some of the comments that Greg Sankey has in his proposal. So take us through what he's proposing here and your thoughts on his ideas. Yeah, so first of all, folks need to have a little bit of a history on this, which is that 11 years ago, there was a push that Greg Sankey and and other you know powerful people, Power, Power Five conference teams were involved in to go from, at the time when there were 65 teams in the NCAA tournament, they wanted to go to 96. That's a lot of teams in a tournament. And, and at the time, they, you know, the powers that sort of pushed back on it uh, said, no, 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 we're not going to go that far. But they went from 65 to 68, which is where we got the first four. And, uh, you know, if, if we were going to 96, you know, who's ready for that game between that thrilling game between number 23 and a number 24 seed for the right to face Gonzaga in the next round? I mean, good God, it, it, 96 is too many. But Greg Sankey's super powerful. And if he's sending out a trial balloon on this, it is a trial balloon with a lot of hot air behind it, if you get my drift. Um, I think it is very possible that that Sankey and some of the other Power Five folks who are, you know, as in control of college sports as they ever have been, are going to force the tournament to get a little bit bigger. And Dana O'Neill in The Athletic wrote a wonderful article I want to read just one paragraph of from what Dana O'Neill wrote to show you what Dana thinks about this, which is that she said, Greg Sankey is a smart man, brilliant even. And the answer to him should be the same as it was when there was a pitch for 96 teams and should be delivered with equal force. N O Greg Sankey and his colleagues already have ruined much of college sports with their power hungry drive to own the world. Leave the NCAA tournament alone. It's not hurting you. Back off. Stay away. Shoo. Get. You don't care about college basketball anyway. Go back to your bunker. Screw up more rivalries. Ask more Olympic sports to travel 3,000 miles for in-conference games. Rewrite the very geography of college athletics. But for the love of all that is holy, stay away from the NCAA tournament. That's what Dana O'Neill says. I'm going to push back on that. I actually think that going from 68 to 72 makes a lot of sense. I don't think it's that bad a thing for the tournament. If if you remember, when we went from 65 to 68, there are people who are like, oh, no, oh, no. But tournament's fine at 68. I think the tournament would be fine at 72. 72 is exactly 18 teams per region. Each region would then have two teams play for the right to be a 16 seed and two teams play for the right to be an 11 or 12 seed. But, and you ready for the but? Here's what I want to add to this. I want there to be two new rules for at-large teams in the NCAA tournament. One, if you don't have 
at least a 500 record in your conference in the regular season, you don't get an at-large invitation. Last year, we saw TCU, Iowa State, and Indiana receive at-large bids to the NCAA tournament without having a 500 record in their conference. And hey, the Big 12 was really strong last year. And the Big 10 was really strong. But I'm sorry. Those teams should not have gone to the NCAA tournament. And then the other thing is, I think we should say that your non-conference strength of schedule cannot be worse than 300 if you were going to get an invitation to the NCAA tournament. Believe it or not, last year, Indiana, Iowa State, Iowa, Texas Tech, and Rutgers made the NCAA tournament as at-large, not winning their conference. They got at-large bids, even though their non-conference schedules were lower than 300 in the country. I think we, if we're going to expand, if these Power Five conferences, if Greg Sankey wants the NCAA tournament to get a little bit bigger, we should ask something in, re- in return. And what we should ask in return is you need to earn that at-large bid by having at least a 500 conference record and by playing a tough schedule. Did you say Texas Tech? Because I'm pretty sure we played them in the Sweet 16. They kind of yeah would defeat but- that, right? Like. In a way, they wouldn't right? have been there. They wouldn't have gotten in because right. their non-conference schedule was so pathetic. So I, I and Sam, I'll get your thoughts in a second, but really quickly for me, I think the idea of expanding the 72 teams, I I leave it like this, right? There's one first of all, there's one thing that remains true. And then there's within this, I've seen some talk about some of the not or the automatic bids kind of going away. Um, or at least, you know, them trying to take not all 31, like so basically allowing some of the, the uh, lower major and mid major teams to do that. I hate that. I hate that. Just like, uh, again, soccer fan, just like the FIFA World Cup, it may be a very remote chance, but every team in the world has a chance to win the World Cup, has an opportunity to play for that chance to make it to, to the tournament. I think every Division One basketball team should have an opportunity to play their way into the NCAA tournament. That's that makes it fair because that's where a lot of these shining moments come from. Sometimes it is their shining moment, but we also get those shining moments on the on the national stage. But for me, I think 68 teams is fine. The NCAA tournament ain't broke, so don't fix it. But if I would tweak one thing, I would say this. There's zero reason why the first four every year is played in Dayton. Zero reason. It does not matter where those games are. They will draw crowds. They will draw ratings. So what they should do is have those first four teams play at the pod that they would be slotted into should they win. That actually makes it more fair because they don't have to travel twice in the span of 48 hours from their school to Dayton to wherever their pod happens to be. The pod sites will be ready. They're already ready to host games so they can host an extra game or two a couple of days before their tournament run starts. And the team that wins would be in town and you have those fans getting there early, spending extra money on hotels, spending extra money on food, spending extra money on entertainment in that city. So that's the only tweak I would have is just get rid of the Dayton neutral site because it doesn't make a lot of sense. Move them to what if, if you're slotting them into a pod that's in Greensboro, send those players and teams to Greensboro. Let them play a game a couple days later. That way they don't have to then get on a plane because what we've seen is we've seen someone have the late first four game, which starts at nine o'clock Eastern time or 9.30 or even 10, ends after midnight, and then they're the first game on Friday morning, like 12 o'clock. That is, doesn't make a lot of sense. And then they're flying across the country to do so. That makes less sense. So that's the only thing I would tweak. Sam, what about you? I don't want more teams in the NCAA tournament. I, I, I think that we've 
we've seen that like, yeah, it's cool that teams in the play in game, like play into the final four and, and whatnot, but I don't really want more teams in the tournament. I think it's already clunky as it is with the, with the 68, honestly, even having the 65, which is really all that I remember. I, I don't, I don't remember when they added the, the 65th team, but I don't, like my only like I want to say it was like 15 years ago or something. Yeah, right? my my memory of the there was a new con- there was a new conference that got created and they didn't want to cut down on automatic bids, so they just said, mm-hmm. okay, we'll have this. Yeah, we'll add one. Yeah. So I I don't even love that. Um, the the teams that make it as like the final at large teams are not teams that I'm excited about. I don't think it's teams that many people are excited about. And for the most part, I, I, they Sam, come, yeah. just really quick, just so folks know, like last year. The teams that were probably the first four out were Texas A&M, Xavier, Oklahoma, and SMU. So, like, if we went from 68 to 72, I think those would have been the teams that probably would have made it. Maybe Wake Forest is in there. But um, Texas A&M and Oklahoma, Henry Coleman and, uh, and Jordan uh, Goldwire. Jordan Goldwire, yeah. Jordan. But I, I also offered this for context in the article. Uh, the reason why the SEC commissioner is the one kind of saying this is a great idea is because, A, a couple of his teams were involved in this uh, at least at least Texas the, the last yeah. couple of years. But also the reason why he's bringing it up as a good idea is because in baseball, they have a 64 team tournament and old miss was the final team into the tournament and ended up winning the whole thing this year. So they say, Hey, it can be possible, but this is college basketball. Like the last team in very rarely gets beyond the first weekend, very rarely gets even more rare gets to the final four and has never won it. So I think, it's a little disingenuous because he's talking about SEC teams saying, "Hey, we can do it. Why? Why not expand it?" This is obviously for for me. It's a ploy to get more SEC teams into the big dance, not necessarily for the rest of college basketball. Let me tell you what it actually is. It's the first step in the negotiation between the power conferences and the rest of the sport to split them up and not have the NCAA tournament anymore. And I hope. You know, like financial interests say that this is probably going to happen uh, because, as you said, Jason, Greg Sankey is a is a powerful man, uh, arguably the most powerful person in college athletics, given where the SEC is today and where it's probably going in the future with the football contracts that it can command, whether it's the SEC or the Big Ten. Those two are like I mean, we've talked about it. Those are the two most important conferences in the sport. They can throw money around like nobody else can. All that said, I hope that all the other conference commissioners and, and anyone that has any power at all in this can figure out how to push back on Greg Sankey. When it comes to, you know, basketball programs, let's go through the SEC. Kentucky, very important. Would love to have them in the tournament. Florida, pretty important. Would love to have them in the tournament every year. Then after that, we're talking about which Auburn, Arca- basketball Arca- programs Arca- again? Traditionally, yeah. Arkansas, Tennessee, Alabama, Auburn, LSU. Like, stop me when I get to a program where you're like, man, I can't imagine the NCAA tournament without that team. Uh, there aren't there aren't really that many of them. So uh, I, I, I hope that there is not more expansion in the NCAA tournament. I like it the way it is, but I, I know how I know how these things go. The only thing I will say about it, the reason I think. You, I, Sam, I think you're right. I think that they're the power conferences are trying to eke a little more money out and at the expense of the smaller conferences. The reason they will never, in my opinion, get rid of the smaller conferences involvement. Do you guys know that two of the three highest rated non-final four games last year 
for St. Peter's games. I mean, yeah, St. Peter's that makes sense. If, if you get rid of the small, the small conference teams, St. Peter's is not in the dance. They're not there last year. And yet they were two of the biggest games that we saw in the entire tournament. Everyone loves Cinderella. Everyone, right? Like, and they always love when Cinderella or David takes down Goliath, right? Whatever, whatever, you know, storybook ending you want to do, they all love that. And that's why, you know, when St. Peter's made their run, everybody wanted to be a part of it. And that's, again, part of the magic of the NCAA tournament. It's not the big teams winning. It's sometimes the little teams make having their shining moments that end up on that montage at the end of the season. Uh, but we'll see. We'll progress. We'll see how this progresses. Uh, I want to, before we log out of here, I want to read an email that we received from one of our listeners, Allison Hefner. Uh, Allison is already cut from the best cloth of people because she shares the state, the best birthday in the world with me, November 30th. So Duke is now required to destroy Ohio state for us on our birthday, but she has a pretty cool story about coach K that we wanted to highlight. So here it is. And she writes, Hi, guys. Longtime listener, first time corresponder here. Just had to share a story from my dentist appointment yesterday. This is a few days ago. Uh, said, said dentist is a UNC grad and a huge Carolina sports fan. Exhibit A, the floor in the dental practices waiting room is made up of pieces of the floor from Carmichael. I feel icky every time I set foot on it. But anyway, he and I have always had some good natured ribbing for each other when one of our teams has beaten the other. Yesterday, he surprised me, though. He said, I have to show you something. And he pulls out this letter that I see immediately has Duke University letterhead on it. He tells me that he was truly offended and upset when UNC did nothing to honor Coach K during his last game there. So he wrote Coach K a letter telling him his feelings on that. And Coach K responded. The letter was brief and very cordial and was clearly signed by Mike Krzyzewski and Duke Blue Inc., of course. As you could see, the ink somewhat bleeding through the back of the paper. I thought it was really cool of my hardcore Carolina fan dentist to write Coach K that letter and even cooler of Coach K to respond. Just had to share that with y'all. Love the podcast and look forward to every episode. Uh, so, Allison, thank you very much for that. And again, for me, I thought that was a pretty cool story for a number of reasons, but mainly because once again, it shows how generous Coach K continues to be with fans and especially even rivals. Uh, guys, do you have any comments on on that article? Jason, I know you you saw it initially and brought it to our attention. No, it's just, it was a beautiful, beautiful note and uh, yet another sign of, it doesn't matter what side of the rivalry you're on. If you don't have respect for Coach K, I don't know what you're thinking. Exactly. I mean, that, I think that's the beauty of this. The, we always talk about this rivalry is intense, but it's intense and based out of that, you know, bottom line foundation of respect between the two institutions. But uh, I think that was really cool. But we do have another uh, new pet bit of news that we want to share and and jason i know uh you want to bring that to our attention it's something that as we were recording just a couple hours ago uh just happened but a longtime member of the just college basketball landscape one of the legends of the game uh passes away jason take it away yeah pete carroll the uh, longtime coach of princeton university uh passed away pete pete lived a good long life 92 years old when he passed uh just like donald said earlier today Think about how great you have to be of a basketball mind for them to name, uh, you know, a, a, a strategy after you. The Princeton offense is Pete Carroll's invention. Um, it is something that many teams have have tried, have used. It is, uh, you know, an absolute part of the vernacular of the sport. And for Pete Carroll to do what he did at Princeton, a school that doesn't officially have any scholarships. 
Um, and yet he was able to, in his heyday with those Princeton teams, just executing the most beautiful to watch offensive mo motion movement shooting. He was so far ahead of his time. And, you know, just seeing that he'd pass today, it took me back to God, the game against Georgetown that they end up losing 50 to 49 and the game against UCLA in the NCAA tournament, Princeton upset UCLA in 1996. This was a UCLA team that, that included a number of guys who went on to be stars in the NBA. And like that Princeton team, their best player was a guy named Gabe Lewillis, who is currently a orthopedic surgeon. Uh, had never played a second of pro ball. The fact that Pete Carroll was able to take Princeton teams that had guys who were future doctors and politicians and other stuff like that had no hope of playing pro ball and have them play against Alonzo Mourning and and other superstars of the sport uh and and quite often win truly magical and so all of us if if you have not seen the princeton offense executed go get get yourself to youtube right now and watch it it is really something special and we will all miss pete carroll i think the giant part of that is that again we just talked about some of the great programs in college basketball and again a lot of people learn the Princeton office, even from when you're in middle school and elementary school. It, you know, Princeton may not have the best basketball team, but their program is forever linked to college basketball because of Pete Carroll. Uh, and at 92, this is me clapping. Job well done um, for for life and just you know for all the you know everything that he brought to the game of basketball uh, will carry on beyond his years. So rest in peace to Pete Carroll. And that is going to do it for episode 437 of the DVR podcast. One quick thing as we depart, I'm just going to tell y'all out there straight up, you do not want to miss our next episode. Uh, we say that a lot, but I mean it this time. We will have undoubtedly one of the best interview guests in the history of this podcast. We're so excited about having him on. So do me a favor. If you haven't already, you'll want to subscribe. So you'll see when this episode comes out later this week, wherever you find your podcast, like subscribe, rate five stars, review we really appreciate it. This guest is going to be so good that Jason wanted to spoil it before this episode. <laughs> I, yes. Like we were going to tell you the person's name and y'all just going to have to and wait. We for said, no, we're not telling. <laughs> so you, the only way to do it is to listen next time. But for Jason Evans, for Sam Klein, I am Donald Wine. We will catch you next time on the best episode in the history of the podcast. Duke band, take us off. Bring a calculator. <laughs>